Welcome back to the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson, now at our second episode of Series 2 on Shakespeare's Tempest. It's, it's time to consider the second scene of Act 1 of the play, a long scene, which we'll have to divide into several podcasts. So let's get started. Scene 1 ended, you'll recall, with what seemed a certain shipwreck, all the people on board preparing for imminent death. The scene ends and the noises of the storm cease, the stage goes dark, or if we're at the Globe Theatre, the stage is empty for a moment or two. And then what should be an astonishing shift as we come upon something we did not expect. Two people in a peaceful setting talking together. Where are they? Who are they? What's going on? What is the connection between these two people and the storm-tossed ship we've just been watching? That's what the scene has to start explaining. We can divide this long scene into four beats. First, there's the dialogue between Prospero and Miranda, then the interplay between Prospero and Ariel, then Prospero and Miranda with Caliban, and finally the introduction of Ferdinand and Prospero's manipulation of the lovers. This podcast will look at the first beat, Prospero and Miranda. And I'll assume that you have already read or seen the play, certainly Act One. So we'll proceed with that in mind. Well, we seem to come on Miranda and Prospero in the middle of a conversation, as as happens often in Shakespeare. And this is easily accounted for by the dynamics of the Globe Theatre, where there was no curtain and no way to darken the stage between scenes. A scene changed when everyone left the stage and new people walked onto the stage. If two or more people entered from the same side, it made sense to have them speaking as they walked on, and that's what we see here. If by your art, my dearest father, Miranda says as they walk on, if by your art, my dearest father, you have put the wild waters in this roar, allay them. Look how much just these two lines tell us. First of all, we understand that we're watching a father and daughter, and so we understand the relationship between the two from the start. Something domestic, in contrast to the men of the previous scene. And then we also understand, sort of, that the man has, by his art, that is, his skill, specifically his skill in magic, that he has conjured up the wild waters. In other words, that the, that the whole tempest was just a trick of magic, and, and this is the man who controlled it. A little later, Prospero will ask Miranda to help him take off his magic garment, probably some kind of cloak that helps give him magic powers, and so he must be wearing that garment now at the opening of the scene, a garment that the audience will have to recognize as something magicians wear, further emphasizing that this art is a magic art. Miranda's sentence structure, if you have done this, suggests what had just been said before they entered. Presumably, Prospero has been explaining that the storm they'd been watching was all the work of his magic. And we see now that her immediate response is concern for the people on board. She doesn't marvel at his powerful magic or even ask him why he'd done this. All she wants is for it to stop. We know here at the very start of the scene that she has a tender heart. She has suffered, she says, with those that I saw suffer. 
and their cries, here comes one of Shakespeare's hidden metaphors, their cries did knock against my very heart, as though the cries were perhaps travellers, and her heart a place of refuge where they were knocking to get in. Or perhaps it's an image of a drum, their cries the drumstick, rapping on her heart so it resonates. We also see that Miranda understands something of the ways of the world. She can recognize that the ship is brave, that is, splendidly decked out, indicating that it is carrying noble passengers. She knows that social rank calls for specially decorated ships. We, we might wonder if her heart goes out to the passengers because she sees that there must be noble people on board. Has she been taught to respect social hierarchy? Would she still be sorry if the ship had just held Triculo and Stefano? Now, all of this, just from the first fourteen lines of the scene. And then we hear from Prospero, with the first calm voice of the play. There's no harm done, he says. And here's one of those triple stresses that always strike my ear and give special emphasis to what is being said. No harm done. One, two, three. No harm done. And then he repeats, no harm. But what is the tone of this repetition? Has she not been convinced by his first no harm done? Is he tenderly reassuring her that everything's all right, don't worry? Or is there a touch of impatient anger in his voice, as though saying, look, I told you there was no harm done, stop making a fuss. Our understanding of this scene will depend a lot on how we interpret Prospero's tone towards Miranda. But there's no right way. An actor must choose one of these interpretations or some other and be consistent throughout, but we readers must just bear in mind the many different options the lines suggest. I don't want to go into all the content of this beat, the background story Prospero tells to Miranda and to us, the audience, about what had led to his conjuring up this storm. Let's just look at a few points that come up here. For one thing, we get the introduction of the theme of time. The time has come, Prospero tells Miranda, to tell her how and why they got to this island so she can know of what thou art, that is, of what quality, social quality, she is, her position in society. There was no need for her to know this for the past twelve years on the island, but now that she is going to come into contact with people from Italy, she should know where she fits in. It's as though the island stands outside time and place, or rather has stood outside time and place, and now, with the arrival of the king and his company, the social world of Italy has come here. The moment Prospero has been waiting for has now almost arrived, and time has started ticking, counting down the minutes and hours until he has things just where he wants them. The hours now come, he tells her, the very minute for her to start learning her history. <laughs> as soon as time starts running, you have to know what has happened in the past. In fact, it's only then that the past comes alive. Somehow Shakespeare has to tell us what has happened in the past, a long narrative that will take some time to relate. He can't just have a character stand there and recite the events. There has to be some drama. And here, the drama consists of Miranda interjecting a few questions or comments, breaking up the long flow of narrative, 
What about movement? Can that break up the narrative too? Does she sit there the whole time, attentive? Or does she become restless in her anxiety and distress? Is Prospero standing the whole time facing her or walking around? And what kind of gestures? And there are also breaks in the narrative when Prospero stops and asks Miranda a question or accuses her of not listening. What is his tone? Is he impatient or, or is he carefully trying to get the message across, anxious that she should take it in as thoroughly as possible? Is he testing Miranda to see what she's capable of, what her response will be? This is going to be a very important moment for her coming up. And, and don't we want to ask, is he using her for his own ends, or, as he says, has he done nothing but in care of thee? There's no way to answer this here. Notice, too, that Prospero is a good teacher. He begins by asking Miranda what she remembers of the past. He leads her into the new knowledge, starting with what she already knows, letting her go back into the past through her own memories first, rather than just loading her with the events of twelve years earlier. I think this shows respect by the teacher for the student, and it also suggests a close relationship between them. She trusts him to lead her into the new knowledge and is open to what she'll learn, and he knows he can trust her to pick up his leads and catch what is important. But however we see his tone to Miranda, I think it's certain that the more he speaks about the past, the dark backward and abysm of time, the past that had been so cruel to him, the, the more he speaks about this, the more worked up he gets. A good actor will show Prospero going through many different moods during this beat, and the question is how will Miranda respond to them? Some people propose that, <laughs> some people propose that she's dropping off to sleep, which might get the sympathy of the audience, who might also be getting bored from this account. But, but I would suggest that this goes against the very delicate relationship being set up here. Notice the way Miranda's replies are always to the point. She's been following this account well. And not only that, but she replies like someone well-educated. She understands political science. When, for instance, Prospero tells her about the moment Antonio and his agents threw them into the boat to leave them adrift on the sea, Miranda understands power politics enough to ask, wherefore, that is, why, did they not that hour destroy us? Why didn't they just kill us, she means. Well demanded, as Prospero says. Good question. And, and her imagination is so vivid and her sympathy is so strong that, that she can picture the burden she must have been to her father, having to take care of a little girl in the midst of all his other troubles. She's thinking of his troubles, not hers, and needs to be told that in fact it was she and her smiles that gave him the stomach to bear up against what should ensue. Now, what about the reason Prospero lost his dukedom? We have been alerted in the first scene to the issues of hierarchy and the respect due to the proper social order. Prospero was the Duke of Milan. It's pronounced Milan in The Tempest. He was the Duke of Milan and deserved respect and obedience from all the people of Milan and especially from his brother. Is a leader born to respect or does he have to earn that respect? 
The master of the ship in the first scene certainly earned our respect, and has the mariner's respect. Prospero admits that he did little to earn respect. In fact, he, he did little altogether. He retired to his rooms to study. Not what a leader should be doing, or, or not exclusively what he should be doing. We don't know how good a leader Antonio was, but Prospero trusted him to take care of the practical duties of state, and Antonio was, <laughs> he was certainly enterprising enough to scheme to take over and become absolute Milan. Perhaps the question might be put best like this. Is Prospero now acting to restore the proper order and displace the usurper who overstepped the hierarchical order? In other words, is he acting for noble ends to restore justice? Or is he acting for private revenge against a brother who wronged him deeply? We don't know at this point, and, and perhaps neither does Prospero. One more point before we close. We need to keep our eye on the theatricality in this play. There are plays within the play, people playing roles, acting out parts, manipulating audience response. Of course, we learn that the whole first scene was a bit of stage drama with no harm done, and it's apparent that Miranda has been watching that ship tossed in the waters like some audience at a theatrical production. Prospero has his stage costume, that magic cloak, which he takes off when he switches roles, from the magician who conjures a storm to the father instructing his child, where perhaps even there he is playing at being a severe teacher to keep her attention. As Duke of Milan, he, he, <laughs> he did not play his part very well, preferring to remain off stage in his study, and Antonio, who only played the part of the Duke, being given the role only temporarily, wanted more to be Duke in reality, not just playing the part. And at the end of this beat, Prospero puts Miranda to sleep, as though he's the stage manager preparing for the next scene. Well, we'll leave it there. There's so much more we could have spoken about. <laughs> this frustration always happens when we speak about Shakespeare, and we always have to remind ourselves that we can only make brief forays into the plays never cover everything, and never have the final word. And that's good enough. I hope you'll agree. Now we have to meet Ariel, but that's for the next podcast. See you there.